The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Grove. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you before, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the very lucky pastors. I get to be on staff uh, here at the Grove. And I, I mentioned this in the first service, but you know you're really out of shape when you get winded from the front row up the steps to here. And I'm, I'm, I said this again in the first service, but I think it's because I'm pushing 40 here in like the, less than a month. And so, um, whoo, I'm feeling it. Hey, the struggle is real, people. The struggle is real. Uh, but excited as we're continuing today in our spiritual mathematics message series. And, and if the second word of that title brings fear to your heart, just let me put you at ease. We're not going to give you a pop quiz today. Okay. I don't know about anybody else. I hated pop quizzes. I literally thought I might faint in the moments going, I don't know if I remember anything that we just were taught like in the last week. So we're not going to do that today. Uh, but this sermon series really is about making simple equations. Obviously, in math, there's lots of equations, but simple equations based on biblical truths and principles that can help us see more clearly when we start to apply them to our lives and live our lives out through them. It can help us to overcome more easily the situations that we find and ultimately lead to a life that's lived purposefully. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to take those out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28. Always encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. you know, of course, you can open up uh, that Bible app on your smartphone. There's actually bottoms in the seats in front of you. There's Bibles that you can use for today. But Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a quick recap. We started this series last week, um, and I want to put up the, the equation that we used last week. The equation was that, is con- that conviction is greater than emotions. And if you missed the message last week, highly encourage you to go to our website, grove.church. You can click on the first thing it's going to ask you is what campus uh, that you're a part of. If you didn't know that, the Grove Church is one church with two locations here in Marysville and in Snohomish. And once you choose your campus, you can find the menu, find resources, and you can listen to the podcast or catch up on the vodcast, but this is an incredible equation. Convictions are greater than emotions. In essence, our convictions, our faith, our beliefs are greater than, biblical principle, than our emotions. Right? The decisions that you and I make, the, uh, uh, the, the courses that we chart in our life of, lives of what we're going after and what we're doing should be based on our convictions, our beliefs, our faith, not on our emotions. And we know that when we make emotional decisions, we get ourselves in trouble, and Pastor Nick did a great job last week, and, and as he was saying this equation, it brought up a piece of wisdom that was handed down to me as a minister. I'm a pastor. This is what I do. Um, it's my passion, and uh, it was a piece of wisdom passed down from my father-in-law, who also was a pastor, uh, senior pastor of a church in East Wenatchee for over 20 years. Before that, was a youth pastor. Now, he's a pastor of pastors. Um, he is uh, our assistant superintendent of Northwest Ministry Network. We're an Assemblies of God church, and so he's still doing that, and this was a piece of wisdom that he told me that his father handed down to him when it comes to that equation that we just talked about, that conviction is greater than emotions. And this was the piece of wisdom. Dave said, my, my father said, Dave, never quit on a Monday. Never make a decision to hang it up to get out of the ministry on a Monday. Why did he say that? Because in ministry world, Sundays are what we call our Super Bowl. This is what we plan all week for, lots of hours into a message that we hope will be challenging and inspiring and convicting that you as individuals and couples and families would hear and see biblical principles that can help change your life, that you could come to a realization that there's a God who loves you, who cares about you, and that yes, there's sin in your life, but he's overcome that sin 
the worship team practices all week to come on Sunday and usher in the presence of God so that we can experience that. Youth ministry, planning for their events, children's ministries, all of these things. And what Frank was telling Dave and Dave was passing on to me is don't quit on a Monday. Because you're going to stand on Saturdays and Sundays and throughout weeks with people in their greatest mountaintop moments. Moments when they get married. Moments when they bring children into the world and it's incredible and it's celebratory. He says, but you're also going to stand with people in their deepest, darkest moments. Moments when they've just received the call that's a life-shattering piece of news. You're going to stand with people as they mourn the loss of a loved one in memorials. You're going to go on a roller coaster like this. Sometimes people are going to love your message on a Sunday, and they're going to say, good job. And there's other times they're going to hate it, and you didn't hit a home run. You struck out. There's going to be times where people are going to send you emails because they don't like the way that you're leading the church and the direction that you're going, but don't quit on a Monday. Why? Because that's when the emotions are there. In essence, what he was saying is don't make emotional decisions. I give that all to you for free. It has nothing to do with today. But it's a great message you need to go listen to from last week. But today we're going to talk on a topic that honestly for me in my whole 39 whatever years of existence seems to be increasingly growing in intensity. It's something that every single one of us face. Certainly there's commonality to this once I say it. There's also going to be uniqueness to it for each of us as individuals. The, the, the way that we interact with it, how frequently it happens, and those things might be different. But it's this topic of fear. Is that increasingly, I feel like at every single turn, everywhere we look from what we see on TV and media to the things that you and I just face in our lives on a daily basis, there's this, like the temperature's just being turned up when it comes to fear, if you look at the national and the global scale for just a moment, right? You, you see the news and everything seems to just cause fear in our hearts. There's wars going on around the world. You can look at it at that scale, national and global, the financial position and rumors of, man, are we going to go back into another recession, which can cause fear in our hearts? Man, people are like, am, am I going to go upside down in my house again? Right? Some of your stories, I know that that 2007, 2008 period of time, Man, the jobs, many lost jobs, and it took a long time to get them back, and that causes fear to come into our hearts. Politically speaking, I mean, certainly, I, I, again, I know I've only really kind of known about politics maybe for the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and some of you have known it for much longer than that, but it seems there's always been a divide. There's always been this camp and this camp. Well, I don't agree with you. Well, I don't agree with you. Well, my, my way's right. But it seems like that intensity is being turned up all over social media, all the news and all that stuff where it's no longer just I don't agree with you. It really feels like I hate you. If you're in a different group, if you're in a different belief system or party that I do politically, now you're my enemy. And that causes fear to rise in some of our hearts. You see this word and you hear it all over the place of tribalism, this warring between two things. And even for some of us, we have a fear of being uh, identified with a certain group, certainly even religiously. And are we going to have retaliation? We hear about mosque bombings and shootings and all of these things, and it causes fear. You could even bring it from the national to the global scale and come to just a personal life. Certainly, I experience situations of fear for my kids, for my family, for the things that I face. I have conversations with some of you about what you're facing, and fear is real even at the personal level. For many of us, again, not an exhaustive list, but for some of us, we really fear that we'll look foolish. Right? We will either make decisions or we will be moved to indecision and not making decisions because we're fearful of what other people are going to think about us. And we don't want to look foolish. 
For some of us, we don't want to show anybody anything past the, the, what we give and what we show on a Sunday morning. We don't want them to see deeper into our lives because we're a fear of rejection. That if they really knew what I thought or what I did or what, where I've been, past this mask that I put on, then man, it's just this fear of rejection. I think for every single one of us, this is true. As if for many of us, that we're afraid of failure. We're, we don't make choices or actions. We don't put ourselves out there. We don't take a chance at something. Even though God, we feel like he might have given us a gift, man, we're afraid to take a step because we're afraid to fail as if somehow if we fail, that makes us a failure. And it's just not true. And I love even coming out of last week that when we make decisions based out of emotions, I've seen individuals when the fear is so overmounting that they have to turn to something else to try and cope with that fear, with that anxiety. And Nick did a great job of explaining this. And we end up turning to vices and addictions and relationships that we shouldn't be having because we're trying to fill some kind of void or just get rid of that fear feeling. Certainly there are other ingredients in that, but I've seen marriages fall apart because decisions are made or not made because of a level of fear. And it's a real emotion and as a way of crippling you and I, it can leave us in a state of immobility. And so the question is, hey, Ryan, we get it. There's fear. There's things that I'm afraid of. So what do we do about it? Of course, every time we want to ask that question, we need to seek what God says. The Bible is a great place to start. What does God say about this idea of fear? And there's many characters in Scripture that we could look at, many stories. In fact, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a story of a major character in Scripture that didn't face insurmounting levels of fear in their journey. We could use Moses, right? Every single one of us loves the idea of saying, man, God chose me, right? Going back just a few months, the idea of being on the playing field or recess, and we had to pick teams for a game. We all love to be picked and to be chosen. And some could look at Moses and say, God chose him to, to, to deliver the Israelites out of captivity from the greatest nation, Egypt, on the planet. That's amazing. But you put yourself in Moses' shoes, there's a lot of fear Oh, yeah, I have to go and talk to the most powerful man on the face of the planet of the most powerful nation and military. Oh, and by the way, he thinks he's a god. There's a lot of fear that Moses would have had to go and do that. You could look at David. We love the story of David and Goliath, right? An impossible situation of a little boy versus a giant. And yet there would have been a lot of fear when David shows up. That whole area where the Israelites were pitted across the valley from the Philistines, the whole Israelite army and greatest warriors were trembling in their armor in fear because of Goliath. There would have been a lot of fear in that moment. You can think about Gideon. Can We talked about him just a few months ago. The idea that he could lead an army of only 300 men and take on thousands and win is incredible. But there would have been a lot of fear in that moment. It didn't make sense logically to think that that could win. And to be honest with you, that's not even the first thing that God had him do or asked him to step out and do in the face of fear. In fact, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, Gideon kind of argues back and forth saying, man, I'm the least in my family. My family's the least in my tribe. Remember that? I mean, I'm a nobody. You got the wrong person. But what God asked him to do first is to tear down the altars that had been built to Baal, a false god, and the Asherah pole that was next to it. There was fear in Gideon's heart for what might happen to him if he destroyed this thing that was valuable to the, the people, even though they shouldn't be worshiping that other God. Now he moves and he takes a step of courage in the face of that fear, but that fear you can see is still relevant and powerful in that moment because he takes his men and he does it at night, in the cover of night, rather than doing it boldly during the day. But the story I want to 
use today for the examples is a really cool one. It's one that most of us have probably heard before. I'm hoping that you can get something new out of it as we read it today, but it's Jesus with his disciples. And it's in Matthew chapter 10. And when you look at Matthew chapter 10, the gospel of Matthew just seems to overwhelmingly be lots of principles that Jesus would teach not only the people, but the disciples. Lots of miracles that had taken place and incredible things. And yet through Matthew's eyes and in his context, really kind of drums up this idea that Jesus is trying to teach them, fear not, do not be afraid. In fact, he's just in a few verses before where we jump in, he's kind of told the disciples, hey, we've done some miracles and those are exciting, but now I'm going to send you out and you're going to start doing some miracles. But he uses this line in verse 16 that if I'm a disciple, I'm like, go and do miracles, sweet. But as soon as he says this, I'd be like, wait, what? He says, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And that would have been a context and an imagery that they fully would have understood Right? Wolves devour sheep. Wolves are the predators. The sheep are the prey. And he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He says, some of you are going to be harassed as you go out. Some of you might even be arrested. Some of you might get beaten as you do this. You might be persecuted for my namesake. Some of you might even leave your lives, but don't be afraid. And I think for many of us, if we're disciples in the moment, yeah, easier said than done. But this is what he says. I want you to hear this. This is Jesus' words. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet none of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And it's interesting in that moment because for some of us, you might be saying, well, Ryan, I'm really hoping that this principle applies only to the disciples. I hope that this idea, I mean, is that, must have been just for them, right? Because they needed that inspiration and that catalyst in the first century church to make this Jesus movement take off. That's a calling for them, right? But that's not for us. Like our life, like don't be afraid of who can kill me. That's, that's not for us in the 21st century, Right? I want to pause for a moment because in the full context, remember from the moment that Jesus called them to follow him, to leave what they had known in their lives, they'd experienced miracles and situations. And there was one that happened just two chapters before what we just read that has to do with this exact same thing. Jesus was with his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 8. They were teaching a multitude of people, and Jesus wanted to withdraw. He'd kind of tired of, of what he was doing. He said, I need a break. He goes against in a boat, and he calls his disciples with him. And they all get in the boat and they go out into the Sea of Galilee, which some refer to as a lake, but it's more like a sea. And Matthew tells us this because Matthew was there. He says in verse 23, he says, Then he, Jesus, got in the boat and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and instantly it was completely calm. And it says the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And I love when you study the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you read Mark's 
version of this. Of course, many theologians um, would say that, that Mark probably heard this story because Mark wasn't there. He probably heard this story, traveled with Peter, most likely heard this story from Peter. But Mark uses words that when, when you really can wrap your mind around this, and I've read this so many different times, but in studying for it, man, this just kind of pops out, is Mark uses this term that after the wind and the waves had come and were coming over the boat and the storm was coming and they literally thought that they were going to drown and die and they go get Jesus and Jesus in a moment stands up and with his words rebukes the wind and the waves and everything instantly becomes calm. It's in that moment that Mark uses this phrase, And he says, and they feared a great fear. What? What, what, And they feared a great fear. And when you look at the Greek words, Mark actually uses the verb tense of the word fear or afraid. They feared, they were afraid. A great fear, and he uses the noun in reference to Jesus that they were here in this place, and in this thought process, they're in the boat, the waves are coming over the bow, there's a great chance that they're all going to die in this moment, but when Jesus stands up and with a few words rebukes it, and the weather changes instantaneously, it says, then they feared a great fear. First they feared the storm, but then they realized that there was one that is greater than the storm. And for some of us, I get it, it's hard. It's like, Ryan, okay, are we supposed to fear? Are we not supposed to fear? I'm confused. I don't know if you've ever read passages of Scripture where, like, I'm not really sure what that means. Lord, please help me understand. But we all realize there's a good version of fear, right? Let me tell you, when I was a teenage boy, I had a healthy fear of my father, okay? It kept me from doing some really stupid things. Now, I did some stupid things, but it kept me from doing some really stupid things. That's a healthy fear, Right, I have a fear that if I put my hand on a red-hot stovetop, I'm going to burn my hand. That's a healthy fear right, of understanding. And I love that Mark uses this term because, in essence, now you jump back into Matthew chapter 10. They've already had the boat experience, and now Jesus is teaching them, I'm sending you out, and you might be arrested, you might be beaten, and some of you might lose your lives. But do not be afraid of those that can kill the body but not the soul. There's something far greater than that. In essence, Jesus is saying, your view is here. You've expanded your perspective a bit because you've seen me do some miraculous things and it's opened your eyes that there are things that you thought were impossible that were impossible, but your perspective is still too small. The thing that you're most fearful of is losing your earthly life, but I'm here to tell you that there's a chance that you could lose your spiritual life. Do not fear the storm. Do not fear the one that can take your life in the physical, but fear the one who could take your life and your soul in hell for eternity. In essence, what Jesus is saying, you're so focused here. Everything you live for is here. Everything that you're, 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 you're trying to do is for here. Everything you're afraid of is for here, but there's something so much greater at stake that you don't understand. I love that Paul in Philippians 2.12, hold on to that idea, then they feared a great fear. For a long time, I didn't really fully understand this verse, but Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this in Philippians 2.12. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, and here it is, catch this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But wait, Ryan, I thought, I thought God was a loving God. I thought he was with me in the storm. I, I thought he was with me in the fire. I thought he was for me, relentlessly pursuing me, but now I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear. I'm supposed to, 
And what Paul is reiterating is a principle that Jesus had shown his disciples and taught his disciples and taught the multitudes. Work out your salvation, what you believe. Work out what is most important in your life and how you live your life and where you invest your time and where you invest your resources because you're spending all of your time here when there's so much more at stake. James chapter 4 verse 14 says that life is but a vapor, a mist, here one day and gone the next. And I think what ends up happening for us is even though that many of us have heard that principle before, we end up focused on this. And I know that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years of life seems like a really long time for us. And everything we have is here. It's in the moment from here to here when there's still eternity left to live. And everything we do, everything we worry about, everything we invest in and work for is here. And what Jesus is saying, you gotta step back. There's something much greater at stake. There's eternity that you could be separated Your life physically being taken is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's eternal separation from me and hell. And so if last week's equation was that conviction is greater than emotions, this week's equation is fear that you and I face, plus the courage to take a step out and movement equals that our faith is built up. Like Moses and the fear that he faced to go stand face to face with Pharaoh and say, let my people go, he took a step and the miraculous took place. David, it didn't start with Goliath. There was the lion and the bear. There was moments when his faith had been grown because of experience of seeing God provide and come through. So that way when he showed up on the scene and all of Israel's army is quaking in their armor, He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares to defy the Lord our God because he had seen him move? In the face of fear, when we take a step of courage, our faith is built up and God can do the impossible. It's interesting that even with the boat experience and even with the teaching that came two chapters later, the disciples still didn't get it, right? You you look at Jesus when he was arrested, what did they all do? They went and hid because of the fear that was there. But if you were to stop reading that story right at the moment that Jesus was arrested and you see that the disciples flee and you decided not to read the rest of the gospel accounts and jump straight into Acts, you see a completely different manifestation of how the disciples live, don't you? In Acts, they live fearlessly. In the height of persecution from the Roman Empire and from other places, in spite of watching their friends, the other disciples, one at a time get picked off and martyred and tortured for the faith, they continued to move forward because their faith was not based in comfort. It wasn't based in a lot of the things that maybe happens in America. It was based on understanding a major principle that had happened in between when he was arrested and when you see that new first century church and that movement start to take place. And what was it? They saw a resurrected Savior. And when they saw Jesus was alive and not dead, it changed and they began to not have fear of a physical death here on earth. And what Jesus had taught them all those chapters before is they began to get the bigger perspective at what was at stake. I want to close with this. I wonder, do you recognize the name Marcus Aurelius? 
I'm a huge uh, history buff, and I, and I love movies as well. I've said that many times. But you might know that name, Marcus Aurelius, from the movie Gladiator. Okay, Marcus Aurelius is the really old Roman emperor at the very beginning of that movie. Maximus is kind of endeared to him, right? In the movie, his son Commodus uh, kills him, which, by the way, is not factually true. But Marcus Aurelius was a real person. In fact, he lived about 150 years, give or take, after the death of Jesus. And history tells us that he led the fourth major persecution of Christians somewhere between 165 and 180 A.D. And when we talk about the persecution of Christians, we're not talking that they were just killed. Unspeakable things that Christians went through. Torture, worst kinds of torture. And there was a famous Roman doctor at the time named Claudius Galenus. In fact, you can still find his writings. He was kind of a big deal in his time. And for context's sake, in, in that day and age and in that culture, when a body, when somebody died, doctors weren't allowed to do autopsies. You didn't touch a body. You didn't examine it and do all of those things. After somebody had died, you bury them or you burn the body. You do something like that. But doctors could examine bodies that were dying. And so what doctors would do is they would hang around the arenas. They would hang around the areas where Christians were being persecuted and others as well in their effort to learn more. And in his writings, Claudius references Christians about a half a dozen times. And this is one of the things that he's quoted as saying in his writings in reference to Christians. He said, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something that we witness in them every day. There was something that the first century church and the disciples had found a faith in which they weren't afraid to lose their physical life because they understood there was so much more at stake. They began to live their lives in every moment of every day, pursuing the call of God and the ministry of God and to move it forward. And so for you and I, when we face those fears, those real things, maybe you face one of those examples that I gave at the very beginning. It's not an exhaustive list, but maybe you're facing that thing. In spite of that fear that is there, you need to understand that you are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that makes you royalty. And he has not given you and I a spirit of fear. And it may take that you and I really have to try to wrap our minds around this principle today. This is not one that's just all going to be like, hey, that's great. It's, it's hard, it's difficult to say, would I really be willing if my life was on the line to still live, to still stand for Jesus, or is my faith something different? Maybe it's that perspective that we need to ask God to come in in our hearts and say, man, I need to see the bigger picture like you were trying to teach the disciples. But I love this because all over Scripture, you see verses of encouragement that God either says, fear not or do not be afraid. I love 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul writes Timothy and says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So for you and I, fear plus courage equals faith. When we face those situations in fear, but we take steps of courage, our faith is grown. And courage, as we all know, isn't the absence of fear. There's many quotes out there about this. Nelson Mandela is one of them. You can't even have courage if fear isn't a part of that story. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the triumph over. It's the willingness to move in spite of it. And like Moses and like David and like Gideon and like the disciples, when you and I are willing to take a step 
amidst the fear that we face, that's when God shows up and does the extraordinary. I want to end with this. I want to ask you a couple questions. What fears weigh heavy on you? Let me just take a moment. What fears weigh heavy on you? What are the things that you're facing that keep you up at night? That puts you in a place where you're paralyzed to make a decision and move forward? What fears weigh heavy on you? Maybe it's a physical fear. Maybe you or somebody you know has been diagnosed with something and that causes a real fear in you. I just walked through that with my family and my dad earlier this year. Maybe for you it's financial and that fear keeps you awake. Maybe it's a fear of failure that keeps you from stepping out and taking a chance, taking a shot. You and I are not meant to live in fear. We have power through Christ to overcome that fear because of what he did on the cross. I want to encourage you this week. Church, I want to encourage you moving forward that like David, like Moses, like Gideon, like the disciples, like Peter when he's in that boat and Jesus calls him out onto the water to walk on water, which is impossible, and that fear is real, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. If I were to ask the question, how many of you would like to see a miracle? How many of you would like to live a life and experience things like the heroes that we read about of the faith? Here's the key. That when you and I face the fear that's real, that we take steps of courage because it's when we step out of the boat like Peter did. If he stays in that boat, everything he knows is that boat. He's a fisherman. He spent more hours in the boat than anywhere else. He's safe inside the boat. But Jesus says, I want you to come out. I'm calling you out of your comfort. I'm calling you to come take a step of courage over your fear. And when we do that, when you do that, that's when you see, that's when we see the extraordinary and the impossible happen. That when you face fear because of what Jesus has done, you can stand in confidence because he's bigger than the storm. And he's bigger than your fear. Amen? Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you. My simple prayer is that this is not just a message we listen to and forget about it. Father, I want a faith that would stand up against that kind of test. I don't know if I'm there yet. But I want to have a faith that's real. I want a perspective that is bigger than that small little piece of rope that constitutes my life. And I want to see and think about eternity. Can we hear about, and I think about the scriptures, God, where you say, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, which are going to go away, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Another reminder that there is something bigger at stake. And God, I just pray for courage for each person in this room for whatever they're facing. Lord, that they would take a step like Moses, like David, like Gideon, like the disciples. And God, I'm expecting you to move in supernatural, miraculous ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you wanna keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.